retailers, COVID-19 sparked an era-defining pivot towards e-commerce. Engaging digital shopping experiences is now every retailer's battlefield. But as 2020 recedes into the history books, how far along this digital journey are we? Even, or perhaps especially for established brands, there's a lot of complexity involved in building an e-commerce offering. Retailers need to understand the opportunities and challenges of headless, composable, and contextual commerce stacks in order to build a foundation they can grow on. In this episode, we're talking to two of the leading experts on the front lines of e-commerce about how companies can best prepare to take advantage of the biggest technological shakeup in retail for about 10 years. You're listening to TechForce Middle East, a new podcast celebrating trailblazers in the region, and today we're joined by James Semple and Simon Janaid. James is a composable commerce evangelist and spends the majority of his time speaking to some of the world's most exciting brands about their journeys towards headless commerce. His other passion includes music and telling dad jokes. We also have Simon Janaid from Al Shire Group, who have been leading the e-commerce push in the Middle East with over 100 e-commerce sites and apps in MENA. James, Simon, welcome to the show. Before we get into the future of e-commerce, shall we start with some icebreaker questions? Absolutely. Simon, first to you, online or in-store shopping? Online, always. James? Wow, okay, that was a comfortable response. Um, I think online for some things, there are some things I still I still would prefer to buy in-store, I think, but it definitely is based on, you know, which kind of product. Simon, what's the craziest thing you ever bought online? Has to be cow dung for my garden, but <laughs> yes, that has to be the craziest thing. James? I can't compete with that, but I, I certainly, I certainly think the thing that I was surprised I bought online was a guitar. Which, I mean, on one side, maybe not a surprise, but on the other side, typically something I would prefer to try out in store. So it was kind of a surprise to myself that I did go out and buy one, and you know, obviously not a cheap purchase as well. So, uh, really, really good experience doing that as well. Simon, your favorite trend in e-commerce? Social. James. I mean, it's it's not quite there yet, but I think contextual commerce is one of my most, you know, one of the things that gets me really excited, the idea of buying while you're doing something else. And yeah, social could be seen as part of that. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of, I don't know, shopping while I'm on TV, pausing, pausing a scene and buying products that are inside that kind of inside the scene I'm looking at. So yeah, contextual commerce is the thing that gets me excited. Brilliant. We're going to talk a lot about that in the, in the, for the rest of the show. Simon, if there was only one e-commerce site that you can shop in for the rest of your life, what would it be? It has to be Amazon, I'm sorry. It has to be Amazon. And James? <laughs> I'm glad Simon said that because I was like, should I say that? Um, uh, I, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll go with one of my favorite music stores so they get a free advert. So Anderton's in Guildford uh, has phenomenal, phenomenal uh, set of products. And so I always buy stuff from those guys all the time. And Simon, if you were able to set up your own e-commerce store, what product would you sell? It has to be bags. I love bags and shoes. James, bags and shoes for you? Uh, probably digital products like uh, downloadable music, something like that. Fantastic. Guys, now that we're warmed up, let's get down to business. James, this is to you. We, we just talked about e-commerce uh, being a massive, massive part of digital transformation of, of online companies. Do you think that we'll ever go back to in-store or in-person uh, buying and selling, or will, you, will we move completely towards uh, online commerce? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, one of the things that I noticed was that when you know COVID's lockdown started to end, I noticed that a lot of customers, you know, 
as you said previously, I speak to you know hundreds of customers every year, and so uh, you know hundreds of retailers. And I noticed the first thing that happened was that they said, "Well, you know, great, we've got people coming back in store." But then, after two years of selling, you know, purely online, I noticed that a lot of retailers were quite disappointed with many of the features of install. You know, if you think about somebody coming online, you know a lot about their existing history, if they've still got items left in their basket, things like that. You're able to do intelligent upselling, intelligent recommendations. If I walk into a store, you don't know if I'm, you know, one of your best customers or coming in there to rob you. So, you know, this idea of kind of using the store in um, more innovative ways, I think, is definitely going to start to happen. I think you're going to see a lot more joining up of the two things. Um, and then I think you're going to see it more from an area of like they're becoming more like kind of car showrooms, that kind of idea where you might just use it for specific things like testing, trying all products. But a lot of the actual transactional side, I think, is going to move online, definitely. And Simon, you work for Alshire Group. Um, I read the other day that the company was set up in 1890s, more than 120 years old. How did you support a, a family-owned business such as Alshire to transition to e-commerce to a point where they have 100 sites and apps in the MENA region? So Alshire, you're right, is an old family business, a Kuwaiti-based family. Um, however, they were the first to bring a franchise model into the region, so Mothercare, Starbucks, and from there on lots of companies have started doing that so they have been known to do be the first now um online of course you know when retail is so successful online is sort of seen as a secondary um or wasn't that uh popular in the region then um however covid accelerated digital growth and that's absolutely what happened with Oshaya. stores closed down they had nominal online presence um, and that's what what really accelerated. And once we went live with one website, one app, we saw the phenomenal response from the customers. Um, that sort of paid the way then for further rolling out, developing regions, and um, we are where we are now. You know, over a hundred apps and websites throughout the region. That's incredible. And and James, you talked to a huge number of of customers that sell all kinds of products all around the world. What kind of conversations are you having with these customers? Well, actually, I mean, one of the things that struck, struck me now just about what Simon said is actually there was a lot more of that in you know Britain and America than I'd expected. I always thought that everyone was very much bought into um, online shopping, but it was amazing that it really was COVID that actually finally clinched it and got the buy-in from everyone. And I was surprised at how many companies still kind of begrudged the online experience up until kind of COVID came along and sort of saved their companies. Sorry, and sorry, COVID came along and their online experience saved their companies in that sense. So well, the kind of conversations I have now really, well, I, I would say it's changed in the last six months. So about 12 months ago, I would have said a lot of it was based around, you know, massive areas of growth and how they could really expand. I think in the last six months, a variety of different conditions, such as the, you know, global economic conditions right now, attending to push things to more small, slightly shorter term transformation. So it's how do I upload my top line? How do I improve my experience for my customers? But at the same time, it's slightly, you know, pulling back a little bit, a bit more risk averse, slightly shorter projects. You know, how can we get time to value quickly? Whereas, you know, maybe 12 months ago, people might've been talking about two year plus projects. Now it's more like, what can I do within six months or less? And I'll go back to you, James. Uh, more and more retailers are talking about this concept that's that's headless commerce. I'm not really sure everyone actually knows what it means. How ready are retailers to start emulating the success of online juggernauts such as Lego and Boohoo? You know, that's a really, really great question. Um, and I, I would say that we have quite a different uh, approach to this to many of our competitors. 
uh, and even partners that we sometimes talk to. So the first thing that a lot of people talk about is what they consider to be digital maturity. And there's no doubt that for many of these kind of architectures, a company who says, I talked to a company, their digital operations team is like two people. And they say, well, when, you know, can we go composable? Can we go headless? And the typical kind of headless architecture is going to need a much um, larger and pretty sophisticated, you know, operations team to run that because instead of having a single product doing everything for you, you now have an architecture made up of multiple different products and you've got to make sure they work together and deployments and upgrades, all of this suddenly is now on your shoulders. <clears throat> the way that we've been looking at it at Salesforce is I can understand why these companies want the benefits of headless and composable. How can we make it as easy for them to do that as it is to use the previous generation, the kind of all-in-one style solution that they used to. And, that, and that's what we've been working on. So we do believe it's feasible for people to get this kind of uplift. And we do believe it's feasible for them to take these benefits um, with minimal disruption to their existing, you know, their existing day-to-day. Simon, how do you feel about headless commerce? I th- I mean, I sort of agree partly with what um, uh, James is saying, you know, it is um, companies do need to go to headless, of course, there's there's flexibility, there's agility. Um, and one thing we're looking at how we actually can go faster to market now, you know, that's one of our core things that we're looking at. And headless, of course, enables that. Um, but then there is, of course, a cost. And operationally, do we have the teams to manage it? I think it's a bit of a balance for both. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we want to, what we want to be able to do today is decouple the front end experience from the back end so we can deliver features quickly. We can personalize experience um, for the customer. I, I, I think that's what's going to, going to make it um, make a real difference as we go forward personalization with the customer. Uh, and this enables us to do this. So I think there's lots of um, pros and cons. Um, I think as a company, we have to be ready for that model. Um, but once we get there, there's lots of benefits. Awesome. I'll stay with you, Simon. Just coming down from a global context to a more regional context, do you think e-commerce in the Middle East is different to other regions around the world? Is there a particular playbook here that's different to maybe Europe or North America or Asia? Um. So e-commerce has followed the West model slightly. I mean, Amazon, for example. However, there is a, a lot of, um, I would say, different differentiators here in the region, um, which you have to cater for, for example, cash and delivery, and also the amount of social and mobile commerce. The amount of mobile penetration or usage here is much, much more than in other regions. Um, so um although yes a lot of it has been taken on board from there but there's it's very much now catered to the market it's a younger market they want to see more you know they they we we talk about contextual or social um commerce here and i think that's growing as well awesome uh james you you, you talk to a lot of retailers around the world about moving and transitioning to e-commerce so that they can potentially future-proof their organizations. What do retailers need to do to prepare themselves for the future of e-commerce, whether it's composable, contextual, or headless? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the way to look at it to start off with is to look at your business goals. So um, it's very common for, or it has been, we, what we've noticed in the last few years is, is many people just adopting headless and composable being blunt because kind of everyone else is. And I, I think that's not the, the way to look at it. The way to look at it is what is your personal journey as a company or what's the individual company's actual plans and journeys because 
It is it is uh, specific to each individual company. And so I think the first thing to look at is what is your business objectives, then to look at what you actually have right now inside your company and you know, take an inventory of the existing technicals technical estate that you have. It's it's very, very important to do this because as you start to break this up, typically one thing we've seen in the past is companies uh, take for granted a lot of what they were getting with an all-in-one solution. And then as they move to a kind of composable architecture, they sometimes overestimate or just assume that certain products are going to add all these features back in and they don't realize they're having to buy these out. So just the first thing is just ensuring they're getting co coverage of all of the features that they're used to. And then I think the next thing is just looking at, you know, the process, are your existing processes tied to your current product? And can you break those up? Because I think that's one area where sometimes people, you know, companies want to stick to an existing process and that can sometimes like hamper them in, in that area. But I think the way to look at it is to look at um, how you can sort of keep your operations as, as quick and as efficient and lean as possible. And then, you know, how you can minimize any of those kind of disruptions, kind of as Simon was saying earlier on about, are you, you know, do you need to grow out that operational team? And then the other thing is to look at which which touch points, which ways, which channels are you going to be interacting with your customers? So social was mentioned. Do you want to have some form of in-store experience? Are you going to be doing a, a website as a native app? I think that's a big thing to be looking out from kind of from day one. Simon, how about you? How, how can the organizations that you work with and others start to prepare themselves for the future? Um. Uh, James mentioned, you know, but one is really does uh, does the digital transformation or digital journey align with your business goals? It has to, otherwise, you know, you can't do one without the other. Um, do you keep customer uh, centricity as your main point? Is that how you want to move forward? I think if you get these two things right and um, using these two will enable you then uh, to have a more seamless connected journey with the stores because I think today we talk about or we have spoken about online being separate to stores. Actually, it's it's the same customer in both areas. So, and that's what the customer expects. So, if I'm you going online, you know, rather than not knowing the customer, like Jamie's saying, you want to know who the customer is, and you can only do that if you've got the data points there, if you've got analytics ready, if you've got a seamless, personalised journey. And I think this is where um, the, we're going, where the region is going as well. And, um, and also on top of that, I think it's really important is that experimentation um you know how this should also enable being able to do a digital transformation enables you to try things and maybe fail as well but then do it better next time so i think these three things are really really important for any company amazing i will stay on the point that you mentioned which is basically the, the subject of my next question which is around customer centricity with so much changing all around us from a technological standpoint process standpoint people standpoint how do we maintain our focus on the customer with all of these rapidly changing uh, concepts, um, so we have to we have to give what the customer wants. You know, we might churn out lots of products. I think, um, but if the customer's not using it, obviously it's not success. So I think um, digital transformation is no different. You have to do it for the right reasons. So which is, of course, the customer-centric approach. Um, so we talk about how do we know what a customer-centric approach is. Again, I would say data, you know, know where what your customer is doing, know where um, they want to make a difference. Uh, they want you to make a difference to their lives. Um, that means investing in technologies and processes that enable this. Uh, also, um, you know, I think we touched upon this before as well, contextual commerce or social commerce and, you know, social media, voice activate. Um, 
e-commerce that allows you to or applications or you know whatever it may be that allows the customer to do what they're doing like we do today you know while I'm in the kitchen you know maybe looking at a recipe and I think oh I forgot I didn't order this and you'll you go to Alexa if I can say that go to Alexa and order something you're used to it. so convenience is a big thing as well so I think these things will keeping the customer in mind and what they do um will will absolutely accelerate this yeah absolutely uh, James as you as you heard Simon talked about data being, you know, the spine of being able to become more customer centric, understanding your customer in different ways. What do you feel that, what, what do you feel we need to do in order to maintain our focus on the customer um, with this ever-changing um, landscape of e-commerce? Yeah, well, I mean, look, firstly, I think Simon's answer is fantastic. I, I, I totally agree. Look, the first thing you have to do is you have to be where the customer is. You know, if you imagine like a physical situation, if if all of the customers are going to the shopping mall and you're not in the shopping mall, they're not going to buy from your, you know, from your shop. So it's the same kind of idea. As we start to see Gen Z, actually pretty much across the world now, um, you know, start to, instead of going to, for instance, Google, any kind of search engine, they might be going to Instagram or TikTok as their first place to look for products, maybe new clothing, whatever. Um, you need to be in, you know, you need to be in social commerce. So that's the first thing you need to be where your customers are going to be. Uh, once you've done that, you know, Simon did a great job of kind of talking about contextual commerce. And just for anyone who's kind of tuning in and doesn't really get it, that the easiest way to define contextual commerce is, am I, you know, as Simon was saying, if I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking and I need to order something, or I'm looking at a recipe and preparing a recipe, I don't want to get taken out of my current context. So if you think of an example as um, I'm looking at something and it says, hey, you can buy it from this site. And you click on it and you go to a new site and now you have to log in and now you have to go find the product and things like that. Even if it just takes you to a, a product existing page on a new site and you now have to open an account, things like that. This is breaking context. You are moving from one task to another task. Whereas if you've got a buy button immediately in your current context, whether it's in a web page uh, or, or an app or anything like that that you're currently doing, you're actually able to stay in context and make that purchase. That's, that's where you get that massive level of convenience. I think the last thing also that's going to really make a differentiation is personalization. Now, to date, personalization has typically meant showing the right kind of content to the right kind of people so they're not having to sort of filter out irrelevant content. But I think it's also contextual personalization. So understanding where customers are on their buying journey, whether they're in a discovery phase, whether they're actually looking to close. I often give us an example of some kind of... Um, physical digital link up, the idea if I walk into a store and a customer, sorry, a retailer can understand who I am as their customer. Maybe I've got something that was left in my basket online. Maybe I've been doing a lot of searches around a certain product and you know you have those products in store. This would be a great way to come and engage with me rather than just come up and say, you know, how's things going today? Say, would you be interested in seeing these products? So I do that ability to be very personalized in that sense and give a very joined up experience. Th those are really going to be differentiators moving forward. Yeah, I'm actually pretty scared about the future of e-commerce with all this contextual stuff. I'm a massive sucker to to clicking on the screen. If you put buy now anywhere on any of my digital touch points, I'm I'm clicking on it. Sorry, sorry, just to, just to interrupt that. Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, if you think about like we mentioned Amazon already, they're bringing brought up. If you think about Amazon Prime, if you ever pause, they have a thing called X-ray, which will tell you who are the who are the current actors in the scene. If they tell me right now, you can imagine they move to a situation. It doesn't seem like it could be that far ahead where all the products in the scene are brought up as well. So I, I remember watching the show and I was like, I really like that lad, but I couldn't find it anywhere online. But can you imagine if it's just like, you can click it and it's like, that lamp is there. 
and you can just there's a buy button i i will never ever have money ever again after that moment <laughs> exactly I, I, i'm 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 a triathlete and triathletes love stuff and instagram knows about my triathlon hobby and always recommends stuff for me to buy so i just have a massive garage of things that i buy through this this contextual commerce business so uh, yeah i'm pretty scared about where it's going to go um simon what advice would you give to any new customer that's about to or any new company excuse me that's about to embark on a digital customer journey focused on e-commerce um i think you know it goes back to what we discussed before um keep the customer at the heart of what you do and why you're doing it make sure it aligns back to your company goals and um there's something really interesting i um I read yesterday on LinkedIn <laughs> and we're talking about, you know, 10 times or 10%, I think the 10 times, you know, think big, that that's why I would say, you know, um, uh, incremental change is great, but that's not what's going to make a difference. And, um, we can see a lot of companies out there, which didn't do that Kodak, for example. Uh, um, and, you know, uh, like you mentioned, the, the market is changing. Uh, my, young son who's 10 he's he does all his buying through contextual commerce that's what influences him absolutely <laughs> whether it's a youtube or, or social or instagram or to, whatever it is that's how he buys so i think it's really important that we keep our um eyesight on the future while we uh, still are in the present and doing our day-to-day Amazing. And James, how about yourself? What advice would you give to a company making that transition towards e-commerce? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I, I think really it's to stick with flexibility. Uh, I think that's really, really important. You need that flexibility. I think the, the flexibility in the data-driven approach, because um, you need that flexibility to be able to move quite quickly. If suddenly there is a trend and you're starting to be able to move towards that, that's great. This is one of the things that breaking open these all-in-one solutions allows you to do. If all of your business data, your business functionality, things like promotions, offerings, can be exposed to multiple different channels quickly, then you have that freedom to to experiment. But also, yeah, do this in a data-driven way. You know, we've been seeing this from the start, really. When you have business objectives, they need to be objectives that are KPI measurable. Um, and it's the same with this. You don't just experiment randomly for, you know, two years and say, did, did we succeed? You need to be able to kind of use data to drive that and understand which, which of your investments are working well uh, and, and how they're working together as well. So it's not just like, you have to understand how these channels are being used. So some channels might be used more for discovery um, and other channels might be used for direct, you know, transactions and so on like that. But yeah, data-driven approach and that flexibility to change. Uh, I'm, I'm slightly off script. I've got a couple of questions for, for both of you. Um, one of the things that customers are telling us that they're struggling to do is to demonstrate value, demonstrate a return on investment when it comes to transitioning or at least trying to persuade their organizations to move towards headless commerce. What's the best way to create some type of framework around a return on investment model that allows you to go to your senior people and say, listen, we need to spend X millions of dollars trying to move towards headless or composable? Um, if that's a question to me first, <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, it's very difficult because not everyone understands what does headless give you per se, but I think... What's really key, key is if agility, being able to deliver to the market quick enough um, uh, is one of your key uh, KPIs, then a monolith system will never give you that. 
know, if you want to be able to uh, decouple and give um, more personalized uh, front-end experiences, again, react to the customer quickly because you'll see, you know, a lot of, if you don't do a lot of the uh, the large organizations are already doing this. So you're going to have to connect to the customer somehow in a personalized way. Um, I think this is one of the things that you have to set and try and set with the company. Okay, it's an investment, but you have to be honest, that is a two, three years maybe investment. But I think it's really important that the culture is changed. So once you move that culture towards this, then the, the business will see the benefit. Amazing. We heard about agility. We heard about culture. James, how about yourself? How do we create a framework around ROI or value? So, so firstly, I agree with uh, Simon's approach. I actually feel that for most companies, it is the long-term um, benefits that I'm more excited about. That, like I said, the ability to you, do, you really do get phenomenal agility when you move to this. So, what we mean by that is the ability to make changes to the site once it's live, once it's in a headless or composable um, framework. You're just able to to ch make changes much more quickly. And I do think that's a long-term benefit. I also think the ability to move to different touch points quickly is a long-term benefit. However, trying to get the best of all worlds, <clears throat> it's quite difficult to convince retailers um, about these kind of longer-term benefits without short-term benefits as well. So one of the things that we've been working on is that typically one of the advantages of also, you know, another advantage of going composable and headless is the ability to really fine-tune that user experience. And by fine-tuning it, you can typically get things like better SEO, so higher levels of organic traffic, and better um, performance through the site. And simply put, higher levels of performance through the site lead to higher levels of engagement. There's just a very, very strong correlation between the two. So uh, we've actually been able to do this with some of our customers where they do an NB split test across their existing site versus their composable site and immediately measure the benefits from that. And typically those benefits are right across the board. So, you know, reduced bounce rate, increased number of visits to the site, increased number of pages viewed, increased average order value, increased conversion rate. So you should, if everything went well, see the top line go up pretty, pretty quickly, almost immediately, and be able to see those short-term benefits as well as the longer-term benefits. And the two other areas I was just going to mention is one, um, the ability to also ensure that you're keeping that total cost of ownership down, keep that controlled as well. That's a thing you, need, you really need to watch for. And secondly, in certain situations with certain um, architectures, you're actually able to start doing this maybe a page or two at a time, which can also give incremental benefits um, much more quickly. So your ROI comes back within even weeks rather than months. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of opportunities even for that short-term benefit. But I totally agree with Simon that the longer-term benefits are the larger ones. They're just, they're just maybe harder to convince some companies to go with. James, that makes a lot of sense. Simon, James, thank you for joining TechForce Middle East today. You've both helped us to understand where e-commerce is moving to in the Middle East and beyond, and how companies of any size can prepare for it. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us on this episode of TechForce, and look forward to seeing you on the next one.